Welcome to the third episode of the Weekly Pleb. My name is Douglas Rieger and I'm your host. I hope everyone has been having a fantastic holiday season. I know it's been a rough year and some people are celebrating over Zoom, but I hope it's been a reminder of the important parts of this time of year. Whether you celebrate Christmas morning on the 25th or a few days later because you're stuck in quarantine, spending time with your family and the people you care about is what the season is all about. The second most important thing, however, is of course eating some delicious food. That's why this week I talked to a food scientist from General Mills about the current state of the restaurant industry as well as the history and future of food itself. Anybody who knows me knows that I love good food, so this conversation was super interesting and I hope you guys come away from it with a better appreciation for the things you eat. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview. My guest expert today is General Mills food scientist and culinarian, William Beacom. How are you, William? I'm well, thank you uh, for having me. This is our host, Douglas, by the way, everyone. So shout out to Douglas for uh, uh, hosting me here on this program. Hopefully they know that already. If not, hopefully they stick around. (laughs) So you are probably my most famous guest, yes. Yet, considering you've been on David Letterman, right? Oh, this was uh, in 2004. I promise you that my 15 minutes of fame I spent too early in life. Yeah. So, how come you were on David Letterman? I'm a duct tape expert. Uh, I would teach children how to make items out of duct tapes at, at libraries as a part of summer reading programs when I was in high school. And it just blossomed from there. Uh, this was in the early YouTube days. So, uh, we didn't have that kind of like, it, it, well, there, there was the beginning of that kind of viralness you get. So I, I went viral. I was on the front page of YouTube. So that was pretty awesome. And I was able to book a lot of gigs from it. It's been uh, a nice uh, piece of trivia of, about myself for icebreakers uh, since then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an icebreaker right here, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I, when I lived in Michigan and I was in elementary school, you came to my elementary school did your whole presentation. I did, yeah. Blessed Sacrament. Yeah, you My did. mom still yeah, works there. Did. She's hit uh, 20 years she's worked there this month, I believe. So so what is it that we had a, a biomedical engineer on for the last episode, and he was talking about GMOs and a bit about food, but mostly the human aspect of it. So what does a food scientist do? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's important to remember that all those advances and those little tricks that you have in a kitchen, uh, somebody spent time doing it 50 different ways to give you that little cooking hack. And there's a lot of that information that's out there and it's, you know, in tomed in old cookbooks. But I think with the internet age and what we have now and just how quickly a food trend can go viral, uh, a food scientist, it can be someone who's working on quality control someone like me who's working on research and development on the creative side, but it can also be someone exploring the future of food and looking at where we can source protein or how we can better impact the environment with our processes. Uh, there's so much invested right now in, in that side and it's really great to see it be more collaborative. I think in the past, especially with agriculture and food, you had people growing stuff and then people that were trying to make food stuff and they weren't really on the same page. So we're kind of seeing more collaboration with how we uh, care for our land 
and get what we need to get food out versus uh, kind of that reductionist approach of just how much uh, weight of corn can we, you know, uh, how, however they measure that productivity. Uh, so it's it's been interesting at General Mills to see that side where they're really working to try to close that gap and have everybody on the same page so we only take what we need and give back more. Cool. So your, fee, your field has a direct impact on making our agricultural industry more efficient for the future. I think so. Yeah, I think as a, as someone who is a chef uh, and worked the line, I started at Jimmy John's. I've done a lot of, of food things. I've been a, a butcher, um, line cook, uh, uh, a kitchen manager, sous chef, fine dining. Uh, we well, the whole the whole gamut there. We can get into more of that later if you'd like. But uh, it's that it's a it's really hard. It's a really hard job, and you're really focused on pleasing your customers every day. And it's. Uh, you don't get the same opportunities to look at the bigger picture and maybe come up with some solutions that take some more time that you do uh, working as a food scientist. We're still thinking about food all the time and that moment that we have with food, but it's uh, it's nice to be able to kind of slow the pace down and really focus on larger problems versus worrying about if I have enough dishwashers for the weekend or if my meat order is coming in later, if I have enough line cooks for the resis on the books. Like there's just it's a it's a it's a grind it's a challenging job it's it's uh very rewarding uh but it is i really enjoy this kind of uh slower pace and larger kind of picture bigger problems perspective now um my background though is tremendously helpful because you get caught up in the abstract and you forget that these are real people eating food and trying to feed their kids and have a good time with their families celebrations hard days needing just a little quick food so there's all these food moments that are constantly happening around us and just trying to understand those and unravel those stories is really exciting. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It's a very poetic way to put it, I guess. So what you said, you like the fact that you're working on big projects now, it's bigger picture stuff. So what's the coolest or most interesting project that you've been working on lately? Ooh, uh, so uh, my scope is kind of small. I'm, I'm working on it on Nature Valley. Uh, so we're just working on some some snacks for people. Uh, uh, obviously, with uh, the pandemic, people are staying home more. So we're seeing a change in just uh, eating behavior uh, that uh, I believe, in my own opinion, that it's going to really change how people eat in years to come. Because this isn't this wasn't like a six week thing. This wasn't a month. Uh, we're going to be going on over a year. So how how people eat it, it's already changed, and we're working to understand what that means. Uh, and how we can better serve our consumers and uh, give them that food for that moment they're looking for. But then also just the larger shift, uh, obviously sugar, you know, people, uh, scientists, uh, a lot of people coming out, sugar's bad. So how can we address that uh, in our products? And then uh, w w what are we going to be snacking on when we all go back to work and things get back to normal? So we were, we're ready to go back to normal, but we're never going to go back to normal. It's going to be a future normal, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, how uh, my job is a part of that and trying to understand what we can do better to give you that moment. And it's as just a, uh, someone who loves food, it's going to be very interesting to see if we have uh, improved as a nation at, at cooking and feeding our families, or if we are going to go back to just really supporting uh, restaurants in this uh, uh, kind of extinction event in this restaurant industry right now. Uh, and I think you'll see a little bit of both, but if I had to really say one thing, it would be uh, the food insecurity in America 
and how uh, people aren't being able to get enough food. They're not getting the financial support they need from the government during this time. It's going to really change how people view food, uh, especially in that in those areas that are hardest hit. It's going to be really interesting. I think I, I really hope that the issue of like a food desert or uh, all these food bank, like how, how do we just get food to people that need it, you know? And it, that problem's only gotten worse. So I really hope that we can kind of fast forward five, 10, 15 years with the solutions we were already heading towards. But with the, the dire situation we have, I really hope that we can find those solutions sooner and get impactful policy change. And there's just, you, there's so much you can do on so many levels from just donating food, donating time, writing your Senator. There's so much work that needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure anyone who's paying attention has seen the massive food lines all over the U.S. lately because of everything going on. So basically what you, you're saying is that people are either cooking at home because they're staying at home or for reasons of staying at home or because they just don't have the money to go out, right? And where you can't really go out and have that same experience too. So I think that's important. Like when uh, if you have a family of four and you're going out, that's maybe like a once a week thing. Uh, if you're like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, just hit 30 for me. It's a dinner date with uh, my girlfriend, uh, but it's, you know, people, we, we go out for different reasons. And I think uh, there's a huge chunk of people that just aren't going to go back out again because they can't afford to. So you think, I mean, I, I have I have a similar feeling to you that the restaurant industry is seriously going to be hurt by this. Like I think I saw some t- statistic that something like forty percent of small businesses are expected to shutter for good at least, and that's like that's huge. That's a massive impact on the economy. So I mean, what what do you see as steps forward uh, after this pandemic? How do we get people back comfortable going back out to restaurants and how do we support small businesses that are trying to operate? Yeah, well, what, we, what we're seeing is it's bigger than just the food industry. I think, so that I'll say that first, it's really anyone who's working in those low paying jobs where you can't work remotely, which is a lot of, you know, uh, there's manual labor involved, there's customer service involved, you know, going to an arena to when you're at an airport on your trips, like all of that, I think will come back a little bit faster but it's those those people that work their whole lives, those mom and pop shops, you know, this is people's livelihoods. Uh, they've done the right things. They've paid their taxes. They've uh, provided excellent service. They These are people that have done well. And when you take their livelihood away, they're going to be wanting answers and they're never going to uh, be able to forgive that. So you're basically like killing someone professionally when you like if you're a chef and your restaurant's gone and you've done everything right and like what do you do next what do you tell that person oh sorry we couldn't bail your restaurant out but we got you know you can go to mcdonald's or any of these big companies because they can withstand the the COVID 19 and and all that so i if i was in their situation it's like what did i pay all these taxes for all all these all these taxes i mean obviously it's helping their with unemployment for their employees but that's not really, that'd be, you're, it's like you're failing and it's not your fault. And the, the cognitive dissonance from that, what, what is going to come of those people? Because you just created an army of foodie activists that are going to want change. Um, on a, like a bigger level, I really hope that it changes the restaurant model. I don't, 
uh, agree with the tipping model, uh, the difference in pay for back and front of house workers. And I also don't agree with how ownership can, like there's this, this kind of like perpetuated mythology on TV of this, you know, hard ass owner and uh, this this whole really negative work culture that gets perpetuated. I, I really hope that it kind of gets normalized to have a mental health day and take sick time to be working 60, 80 hours, 100 hours a week is not is nonsensical. I, I is a big reason why I left food. And I don't think that anyone who's had this time off wants to go back to that restaurant model. Um, but it, again, it, it all goes back to the consumer. You vote with your dollar. Um, people are still buying takeout and they're doing what they can. Um, people are still opening restaurants. I, I know a couple here that have opened and they're being successful with takeout. It's just that, how do you change to fit these times? We're seeing takeout loss chains, people being able to sell booze to go finally. And that's something that liquor stores and they didn't, you know, no one, no one wants that. The bars don't want that, but now it's here and I, hopefully it stays. There's just, there's just so many things you can do to generate uh, revenue off selling food, but there's so many limitations and uh, every city is different with their codes, even for like when food trucks came out, all the, all the hurrah around the restaurants being mad because they have to pay the property tax and the truck stuff. So I'll back up though, but uh, just that how we can address that model and make it so everyone gets paid a livable wage, has access to the health insurance and the health services they need feels able to take time for themselves and support them, their family. Uh, not, uh, you don't want people to feel like they have to go to work sick in order to make ends meet. That is a failure of our government. And I've been in that situation and I've had employees in that situation. And if they don't go to work, they can't make rent. And you, what do you, what am I to do? You know, I, it's, it's a really uh, difficult spot to be as a, a someone's boss. And it's also just a difficult to see as a human being it's really tragic my own personal experience i worked in a couple hot kitchens for the better part of a year in high school and i i totally get it like I, I all the cooks i worked with i was on the line but all the cooks i worked with they were there were some there that have worked there for like 20 years and they were still getting like 13 50 an hour or something like that i i knew one woman her name was amparo and her son worked at eg's which is like a little uh, uh, smoothie place here kind of thing. It's like an ice drink. Um, it's a local shop, but he's making more than 15 an hour as a manager after three years. And his mom is cooking in a hot kitchen long hours for much less. So, I mean, there's definitely something wrong with the structure of restaurants already. And I think that there are a lot more out of work chefs than people realize because not only are the restaurants closing, but a lot of the chefs really get tired of the work or the traditional work. And they try to figure out other ways to get around that. And like you were saying, it's, it's difficult with the code laws. I know I, I, I started a, a cooking business this, this year and part of it involves having the cooks go cook for people at their houses. And like, it's been a logistical nightmare trying to figure out how to make that legal and uh, up to code and everything like that. So I know that there are a lot of barriers to entry for small business. And I think that's part of the problem too. And, and, and it's the people that are, are scrappy that are selling tamales outside a gas station or, you know, like those are the people that are getting like stopped by the police. It's ridiculous. Like I, I just really, uh, 
we always hear in America, like, oh, I wish we had, you know, better food, especially in some of these smaller towns. And then you get it and they don't like how, you know, oh, well, we, you know, everyone gets upset. But uh, I will, I do have a story. Um, yeah, I have, um, I have a kind of a historical perspective story on uh, this extinction event. So uh, this is over 100 years ago with the Volstead Act. The Volstead Act effectively killed uh, fine dining and really any kind of steakhouse, uh, everything had to go to private clubs. And if they couldn't financially do that, which is understandable, obviously the clubs lived in, you know, Washington, DC, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, these are kind of old established places. Um, that extinction event wiped out any kind of uh, American like heritage of uh, a fine dining breed like you see in France. That was a question I had when I was learning how to cook is like, where, where's our like great American chefs that have passed the torch generation to generation? Well, they existed. You can read about them. Uh, there's a great book called Culinarians. It, it goes through and uh, it's a bio, uh, biography on uh, hundreds of uh, people that are involved in food in American history of all walks of lives, uh, people that were enslaved, people that were indentured servants, where, where, where these people came from, their stories. I love, I love the book. Uh, it's so amazing to kind of read about someone's life that did what I did and kind of pay respect to them because we stand on their shoulders in the kitchen. It's always passing the torch. So what we have now, 100 years later, is another extinction event. Um, I, I will add the Spanish flu definitely had to have an impact. It's hard to say. They just didn't write about food like we do now back then. Uh, but yeah, you had the Spanish food, the Volstead Act. Um, it wiped everything out. Uh, and now, flash forward to now, it's again, something out of our control that is impacting all levels of society. Um, we won't have prohibition in the next 10 years, so that should help them. We can still to go to cocktails now. But what we will end up with is we, it's, it's something we can only kind of dream up now. And I really hope that the dreamers get their opportunity to kind of reimagine uh, what a restaurant is. I mean, it's already happening right now. I'm sure, uh, I, I, like, the my friend uh, Gustavo, he's a Mexican chef, and he's opened a, a, a spot. They're doing to-go food. He's making 1,200 tortillas a day. He's trying to just make tortillas for all the new spots around here that want that fresh masa, that fresh tortilla. Um, and he's making a go of it and it's his dream and he's doing it now, which sounds like, why would you do that? Right. But he had a line around the block the other day. Uh, he just had a baby. This pandemic isn't sewing him down. And uh, the people like that, that are out there grinding. I love it, man. So passionate. That's all his dream was to see people in a line outside of his, his shop in America. And he finally made his dream come true after working for other people, uh, for so long, uh, it's just incredible. I'm so happy for him uh, that in a moment of darkness, we can see that, but that's one guy and one family. Uh, not everyone can do that or uh, can take on that risk, you know? Uh, so it, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be interesting. We have all these, you just turn everyone into an activist, I, I would say, that's involved with food. So hopefully we see some change from that. Yeah, I mean, it Hopefully, I, I mean, I, there are more people like Gustavo, and, you know, and that's great because we need them. They're, they're vital to keeping the economy going during this time. And I mean, there is going to be a massive demand and open market for small business after this. So, like you said, it'll be interesting to see how restaurants change, like what, what kind of restaurant uh, business the future will have, like with, with 
uh, advancements like Uber Eats and stuff like that, or, or DoorDash, people can just bring your food to your door. I feel like since we're a convenience-driven society, there's going to be just more of that, and it's going to be kind of more convenient to get your fine dining experience somehow. And that's kind of where I have the idea to have the chefs going to people's houses, but we'll see, I guess, right? We'll see. I you we so, comments make me think of uh, Japan, like because you can really get some really great food at those little spots. And uh, we, I think what what we will see is kind of an adoption, maybe of some of these other uh, things that work from other cultures, and that kind of we don't need to sit down with a a, a, a tablecloth, you know, and you know have that whole service to really enjoy some good food. Yeah, I mean when it when it all comes down to it, the taste is what people remember. It doesn't matter how it looks, where you're at, what, whatever it is. The food is what people, what lasts in your head. You remember how good that damn food was. I was told by an old chef, uh, people go out to be recognized. People want to be recognized. That's why you dress up and you go. And that's why, you know, you go to the host and they see you. And they bring you water. You People want to be recognized. This is why we go out to parties. Not even if it's by strangers or friends. That's the bottom line. So give them attention. So I think people are craving that kind of interaction as well, because uh, I believe that everyone has a third place. You know, you have your home, your work, maybe, you know, whatever it is for you, church, yoga, whatever. And then you have a third place that can be like a coffee shop or a brewery, wherever you go that is kind of in between. Uh, I, I think people are kind of really missing their third place during this pandemic. And some people have lost that, that place forever. Uh, so it's going to be interesting how, People have kind of reestablished themselves in their communities after all this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of human nature, right? To be kind of social animals and be part of the community, be seen with the people that you live around. But I mean, in times that are so tense, like lately, I feel like that's a bit that makes it even more scary that people are not getting the social uh, interactions that they might need to be able to act normal and maybe not go riding in streets or something like that right <laughs> yeah well and then you people get you know like i've gotten pretty comfortable at home it's kind of nice here <laughs> so it's i think there's a mix of that too where uh maybe things will happen a little earlier you won't have that uh 10 30 uh dinner dinner rush anymore i think people are kind of used to going to bed early too <laughs> yeah yeah everyone's getting used to uh everyone's turning into old people going to sleep early waking up early yeah that's funny yeah I've, I've gotten comfortable at home as well i just had covid not long ago oh i'm uh, sorry to hear that are you feeling better yeah it was I, I wasn't too bad i was feeling better after about a day and a half uh I've, i went on a run for the first time the other day and i was a bit like my breath was more shallow than i would have expected and it was a bit scary because you don't know the long-term impacts and whatnot yada 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 but i feel fine so, fingers crossed, right? How's your taste and smell? That's the thing I'm most concerned about. Yeah. That was my biggest fear. And thankfully, I did not lose taste or smell. No, not at all. There's there's one, there's a couple times I'd be brushing my teeth, and I'm like, is it minty? I can't, I can't tell. <laughs> and then I'm just psyching myself out. But anyways, so clearly, you, clearly you're a bookworm. Right? Yes, definitely a book guy. Mm -hmm. so what are you reading right now what are you in the middle of 
uh, right now, oh man, I got a, this new book on uh, science and cooking from the El Luli guys. They did a course at Harvard and they finally wrote a textbook about it. So it's really interesting because it has some of their fine dining dishes broken down as a recipe to teach a scientific concept with food. But then it just also has some hard science in it as well. It's really awesome to see that kind of uh, that collaboration between one of the best food institutes in the world with, you know, Harvard to, to make it more practical, make it, because cooking is science. And it's so entertaining to me and so exciting and so much fun to understand what's actually happening and how you can kind of improve what you're doing with those little, I mean, it's stuff that really normal people don't think about or, or notice, but it is a little, you know, like how, how can I cook mushrooms better? What I've, I've been playing lately with this technique where you use a half a cup of water and let that reduce down to nothing and then use oil and butter or whatever you're using because mushrooms are mostly water and they will absorb a lot of oil too much oil if you just cook them only in oil and i have noticed that i didn't like that texture that greasiness uh and it's it's like that's a new thing i've been doing in the last few months so there's always something you can learn to improve your cooking or at least improve maybe um how you're treating that you know everything you've bought that nice that nice produce or piece of meat that you bought how can i honor this animal or pay respects to uh this vegetable that is you know nourishing us so uh, as far as uh, some other books, um, let the people pick the president. I'll give a plug for that. So getting rid of the electoral college. Um, I've been reading a little. Uh, uh, oh man, it's a little everything. But I look behind me. So I, I'm a big, uh, big person that will uh, read like 15 pages of a book and set it down for a while. So I have a lot of bookmarks on these books behind me. But it's mostly cookbooks. Huge cookbook fan. Uh, I love uh, the history, the culture that you can get out of a hookbook. It's, they're really, they can be art books, I believe, especially with these higher end books that come out, like Th Thomas Keller's new book, per se, uh, incredible. Um, but then also on the practical side, uh, nothing like a good bread baking book or more of a, uh, the New York Times uh, uh, cooking cookbook from 2007 with uh, Amanda uh, Hess. Uh, she does an incredible job there going through the entire archive of the New York Times and delivering this tome of a book. I love going to it for ideas. It, all the dishes in there are amazing. Uh, you just find things that kind of were from someone else's life or family or restaurant, and suddenly they're a part of your your like uh, rotation. So I think that's so cool when you can see uh, recipes be shared in, in a book and spread. Because in, in compared to like um, other industries, I think it's awesome the sharing that happens with food there's really no secrets because it's all about technique so i could give you a recipe and we're going to make it completely different ways and i love that about cookbooks where people they try really hard to like, set you up for success but you still make it your own and i think that's really magical and there's still room for failure yeah yeah i i just got a cookbook for christmas uh that what you were talking about the food science one i haven't i haven't cracked it open yet or cooked anything from it yet i just got it but it's called the food lab. You might have yeah. heard of it. But it's right on the on the cover in the back, it starts talking about the science of food already. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's a different kind of aspect of it. But now that you've kind of explained it, it makes me kind of think about baking. With baking, you mess up one or two little things, and it could be an entirely different thing that comes out of the oven, right? Like you could have a flat piece of bread that didn't rise because you used the you didn't let the yeast rise or, you know, certain different things open the oven too early. So I feel like that that's my favorite thing about food too, is that 
there's so much more complexity to cooking than most people even realize. It's not just throw it in the microwave, heat it up, or throw it on the grill. You know, there's actual science behind how the food caramelizes, or like you said, the mushroom example. Yeah, so, and the reason every recipe says between three and four hundred, that's when that's when we get the best flavor development, that nice browning. Anything more, and you're burning. Anything less, and it's not hot enough to get that reaction. So, yeah, I had a friend of mine that uh, had this theory. I don't know if it was, his, I don't remember if it was his theory or a theory he had read about, but essentially he talked about how back in the Neanderthal days when we first discovered fire, uh, when we were able to start cooking our food instead of just like hunting and eating raw meat and vegetables that we could forage. The difference of being able to cook activated certain proteins in the food and changed the way we think and kind of put us above uh, as smarter people because we were able to do decision making. You take this food, put it on the fire, well, it tastes a lot better, you know? So I think, uh, what do you think, do you think that Food is kind of the birth of humans, you know, the, the birth of how we started thinking. Well, this is a good question. But so, I, I mean, uh, in my re- in my research, I would say that the the cooking of the food was accidental, and over time, that's why we think it's delicious because they're like, "Oh, this is good. This is the good stuff. This is what I need." And when you eat something that's a little undercooked, you're like, "Ah, like that was developed over evolutionary over time." Um, I mean, imagine the first guy that ate bad berries and his buddy's like, well, note to self, don't eat that one. That one's off the list. Okay. <laughs> so it's those baby steps. Uh, what I think your friend is getting at, it's not so much that we got smarter or, you know, we, we just, we are, we were, we gave, we needed more energy to support this kind of like predator brain that we had. So we went that route instead of getting, you know, brawny or whatever you want. And that still happened, but we were the ones that kind of, survived on and then we were curious so you have uh people uh carrying milk around and then accidentally making cheese and their goat skin uh uh stomach bladders for their for their liquids then you have the you know the guy that left some uh barley out and it started to get a little funky and he's like oh what's going on here so these these like how do we how do we get to wine how do we get to cheese how do we get to beer well it's all fermentation so understanding like the, the for them to so someone, no someone just didn't throw some shit away. Yeah, like they had no like, scientific grounding. The they they ate it like a maniac, and they and they loved it. And and then it's those little building blocks. Look at all the cheese we have in the world. Look at all the different varieties. Look at how each culture has a different relationship with dairy. Like in in the Americas, people weren't milking anything. The only thing that they could milk were llamas. But in, in Europe, they were milking. And I would say there's a lot of evidence to kind of support that the Dutch and that kind of uh, agricultural system, they were able to make more food that was rich to support people, and, and, you know, full, full, fully developed people, not people that were just making, uh, scraping it out, uh, you know, living a, uh, more of like a peasant, you know, whatever you want to call it, peasant life, just uh, not as a well-structured life. Uh, but, that, but the fermentation, though, I think in the stone age or whatever you want to call it the prehistoric days uh this the fact that someone w- was able to figure that out was like hey i'm gonna make i'm gonna ferment some beer because the water's bad here and then we can mix some water with this and it's safe or they're them like how they just were able to intuitively know 
what was good and what was bad for us without having to use some reductionist science to tell us how much trans fats in something. They just intuitively knew and created those cuisines in that culture because it's what they had. And that's what everyone, we all try to, you know, oh, I'm making something Indian tonight or I'm making something uh, from uh, South America tonight. Well, this is just a, a story from a people's culture. That's all they had around them. This is what the best they could do with what they had. And I love that part of it that like we get caught up, but we have so many options now. Uh, but to think that 2000, 3000 years ago, uh, man, what a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that that's probably the coolest part about cooking and food in general for me is that it's just, it's so cultural. And like you said before, it's been passed down by generation after generation because damn, that tasted good, you know? And I think that's super cool. And in theory, eventually we would only have great food, right? Because the good, the bad food would just go become obsolete. Well, what makes food great though? I think it's different for everyone. It's that like cultural identity, you know, it's a, it's a celebration identity. It's a celebration of an animal. Uh, I think, you know, if someone with a, a Greek ancestry is going to find more pleasure and joy in that food and have that, that moment, you know, of that means something else to them versus, you know, me trying it. I, I can't enjoy it the same level they do. Um, I, I think it's important in America too, right now, there's so much of our food culture and food history uh, that was given to us uh, by enslaved peoples. So, I mean, we took them here and uh, we had them, uh, oh, you know, Americans had them cook for them. Uh, we, and we've taken that culinary history away from them as well. A lot of the first cookbooks from that era where it'd be the, the, the head, of, head mistress of the house, the white lady, and it would be the whole book would just be from their, their, their cooks, other enslaved cooks. So there's, I think, a lot of work that can be done to kind of give back that culture. And really, I understand that American food culture is, is black culture. It's what, what uh, white settlers brought over kind of pales in comparison to the flavors and the cuisine that exists in the South in the west now uh uh latinx and uh and uh, uh hispanic food as well like there's just so much going on here things from uh asia this where all these immigrants came from all these traditions kind of collide here in a way that you don't see very often elsewhere in the world and we should celebrate that we shouldn't try to whitewash it and act like we had it all figured out the whole time there's just uh too many people that remain um, nameless without proper uh, uh, credit for what they've given us. I mean, the, um, the United States is a melting pot, right? For food too. So, I mean, I, that's, that's probably the coolest part because I, I remember I was talking about different kinds of food with my friends the other day and we were trying to think like, what's like traditional American food? What's, and you were trying to think of some things. It's like apple pie. No, that's not American. That's from Europe. Uh, and then uh, hot dogs or, or hamburgers or pizza. And all of that didn't really start here. And so it, it's interesting to realize that we brought most of the food, like you said. So like and even just crops, we brought all sorts of crops from Europe. You know, We didn't have a, a whole lot here when they came here. Um, yeah. And what, what it was specifically to that question, when you look, if you're trying to find like a book about it, 
uh, James Beard spent the last half of his career really trying to like he went he went on a road trip and that was what inspired him to kind of put a home together. It's called American Cookery, and it's his best attempt. But it's still you know a a white guy that is going around and uh, collecting all those recipes. So I it's really we don't really have that like that Escoffier like tome of like, Oh, this is our culture. There's, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's better to have all these stories, all these small cookbooks, all these things, all these traditions handed down. Cause that's what America is. It's a bunch of little stories of people that gave up, you know, left their land and came here uh, involuntary or voluntary. You know, we all ended up here and everyone made a go of it and everyone wanted to eat. So we got, I mean, look at the barbecue in the South. Uh, look at like the Northeast, the chowders, uh, like, like anywhere you look, there's something that people are proud of. I mean, there's so many, like the road, what is Rhode Island and the like lobster, whatever they were talking about with the, the politics of their like food day or what they're proud of, the, the squid thing. I don't know. The, the, you, everywhere you go. And it's a good point though. Like apple pie is European, but at what point is it American? Like, Cause it's American. Now. I think that's, it's, and then you look at tomatoes that went to Italy. I mean, uh, chili peppers came from South America, obviously spread with birds. And that's all over cuisine, especially in uh, South Asia. And all those things are kind of new in the last 500 years. Uh, so they're, what we think of as like, oh, that is from a specific area where you're really, tr- you really start to get reductionist with it. And maybe a little bit like, what, do, what are we trying to prove? Like, it's, I think it's more exciting to see the cross-pollination and like understanding like why is the potato so popular here well people didn't like it they had to do cooking demos in europe in france to get people to accept the potato but some of the most classic french dishes have that now so it's it's really uh, cool to look at like foodstuffs of history and and see their their little history uh, history uh told i know i i have a lot of books like that on like orange um, watermelon salts is a great history to check out. Mark Hulancy's book on salt is incredible. I mean, salt used to be worth its weight in gold. Without salt, you can't safely preserve and ferment and do those things uh, to preserve food so you have it without freezing and refrigeration. I mean, freezing and refrigeration, that's a, a new technology in the last 150 years. And look at what it's gotten us to and look what it's able to do with the vaccine. A deep freeze is able to make it so we can distribute this vaccine with dry ice and all that so food our, our food industry and the capacity i mean it w- if we didn't have that we w- i mean now we're getting to over i'm kind of going off the rails here but yeah like overpopulation and that it's like so now we look to the future how are we going to feed 8 billion people 7.8 billion people on the planet now like what there's just so uh food impacts all everything nothing is untouched by food you can't have a conversation about fiscal policy about healthcare food is everyone has to eat and uh you can't take someone's meal away or how they how they get their meal and you're gonna turn people into activists i mean look at um people humans relationship with with uh the water bodies around them that that is what pushed people to the new world you know to americas even though people were living here before then but they were fishing the cod and they were fishing and they went further and further east and that's how some of the first people got you know people from europe got to north america and arguably twenty thousand, ten thousand years ago that's how people got over from siberia as they were following the food they were following the prey and slowly kind of trickling down and uh using the waterways to travel around 
I, I, that can't be over, overstated the relationship with uh, aquatic life and, and humans and look at the impact we've had on the ocean since we can't stand there and see the devastation it's so hard for people to like understand the health of the ocean because you just look out and it's water well, there's so much uh, going on there and it's so important uh, for the stuff growing in the ground it's really uh, incredible how interconnected the food uh, chain all is and how uh, simple it can be at the same time pull out one t- one type of fish and all of a sudden you can't eat some other crazy kind of meat like carnivorous meat that's like way up the food chain just because so and so couldn't eat fish so such and such couldn't eat that you know but i think it's pretty incredible if we had more time we'd go into it but anyways do you have any any last thoughts as a food scientist for the people to hear when you go to the grocery store next time just think about the history of all these people that worked to solve all these problems that we have with food so we can not have food scarcity. The fact that we have full grocery stores, I mean, that's the, uh, what, in the 1950s, the beginning of the Cold War, uh, one of the, the lead Soviet guys, his job was to figure out how to build the Russian uh, food industry up, the Soviet food industry up. And he came to America and went to a supermarket and his mind was blown. And he took foodstuffs back like ketchup and uh, bologna and things like that. And uh, they adopted that. It was a part of their culture, like spam. Uh, so even when we th- think that the world is full of problems and they're like, what, what can happen? What's going to happen with this? There's a lot to stress out about. Food still unites. Like we still opened our supermarket so the Soviets could see how we're feeding people. Because I think it's a bottom line. No one wants to see people starve. And on the flip side, though, we should enjoy our food as well. So next time you go to the grocery store, read what's going on. Read, actually read stuff. Vote with your dollar. Understand what you're buying. Think about where it's coming from. Think about who got it to you. Think about all those people that are in that food supply chain. We take it for granted. It's a modern miracle that we are able to provide and waste this much food. It's incredible, you know? But it's, it's um, yeah. I love food, so go eat some food, guys. 